Last week, as we gathered, we celebrated the reality of who God is in and of himself as we celebrated the Feast of the Holy Trinity. And uh, I have to admit, there was a little video that uh, I found, uh, came across anyway, that said how uh, the church in the last uh, centuries has been, been corrupted and uh, because there's nowhere in the, in the scriptures that we hear the word Trinity, therefore that's corruption. But this person went on to say there was nowhere in the scriptures there was even uh, a vague reference to the Holy Trinity. And uh, everything in my being went, mm, that is wrong. For uh, hopefully if you were here, you heard me make reference to in the very first verses of the Bible. We hear when God created the heavens and the earth, the spirit hovered over the waters and God spoke. All three persons of the Trinity mentioned uh, at least hidden. And there's other, of course, in the Old Testament references that uh, we can see at least a glimpse of. But until it's revealed to us by the person of Jesus Christ, we cannot understand, we can't fully understand the Trinity anyway, but we cannot understand that God is three persons in one existence because that's beyond our human comprehension. And so just the, even the knowledge that God is three persons has to be revealed. Besides that, I, I was reminded uh, time and again, uh, and I had a, a professor, and, uh, Father Dittburner, who kept reminding us, unlike the Jewish and the Muslim people, we are not, as Christians, people of the book. Yes, the Bible is important for us. Yes, we cannot set it aside. But we are people of Jesus Christ. We are, we are people who follow a person, Jesus Christ. And the book that, that he's left us, the, the scriptures, the Bible, or the many, actually the collection of books that he's left us in the Bible, yes, all reference, but our faith is larger than that. After all, as St. John says at the end of his gospel, if, if everything that, that could be written of this Jesus were written, there would not be enough room in the world to contain all the books. This is the reality, that sometimes our faith... <clears throat> has developed and, and certain language, theological words and philosophical words have developed to help us understand what was revealed and what lays hidden in the scriptures that, that is brought forward in, in our understanding. And yes, it wasn't, the words weren't used maybe for the first centuries of the church, but that should not disturb us because they were still following Jesus. Another doctrine of the church that is so misunderstood, a doctrine that until uh, actually the last 400 or so years uh, was accepted even by the early Protestant reformers, by the way, uh, we can tend to forget that, is the doctrine that we celebrate this day, the feast of the Corpus Christi, the most holy body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so often I hear that, that, that uh, Catholics have created this doctrine out of thin air and that, that it's an abomination and all these things, and nothing could be further from the truth. That it wasn't a development of the 13th century, that, uh, that what we celebrate today is the body, blood, and soul of divinity of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. That Jesus Christ is the Eucharist would be the more technical way of putting that. It wasn't just understood, yes, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and, and many other saints and philosophers have helped us have the language of transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine become the body and blood, that it changes substances, that it 
uh, is transformed and made the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. But it was before that, too, understood. In fact, in the first century, it was understood that way. In today's gospel passage, it was understood. And yes, it's not explicitly about the Eucharist, but it is St. John's uh, uh, recording of Jesus Christ telling us what the Eucharist is, that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life who's come down from heaven. Not manna that's come down from heaven, but something better than manna. That, as Jesus is sharing, he's telling us man, manna is a foreshadowing. What is manna? Again, we have to go back to the desert, to the wandering of 40 years after the uh, Jewish people were freed from uh, the, uh, their imprisonment and their slavery in Egypt. They, there they are in the middle of the desert. Those that uh, <clears throat> will travel with me in the, on pilgrimage, we won't see the desert as much, but we will see how there's not much that grows in the southern part, especially where uh, closer to Jerusalem. And as you look south from Jerusalem, there's nothing there. There's barely grass. I, I keep wondering, how, how did they even keep the sheep alive? But there's nothing, and the people there are hungry. Can you imagine feeding a whole nation in the middle of a desert? They're hungry, and their rations run out. And God provides. He provides quail in the evening and manna in the morning. This mysterious food that he provides. They go out every morning and they pick enough for the day. Whatever they pick more, that was more than enough that they could eat that day would rot by the next morning, except on Friday, where they picked a double portion and it stayed fresh that they did not have to go out and work on the Sabbath. Well, wait a minute here. If it rots on one day, six days a week, but well, the seventh day, it, it, it takes two days to rot, there's something strange about this food. And they, they go back and forth about describing what it was. Sometimes it's described as sweet, and sometimes, you know, how they ground it up and made, made bread out of it, and all these things. They, they don't know, they don't understand what this bread, what this manna was but they knew that God had provided it. But at the same time, they forgot that God was providing it, and they grew disgusted with the food. In fact, we've grown disgusted with this food. Let us go to, back to Egypt, to our cucumbers, our melons, and our leeks. I love that line. I, I, I love cucumbers, melons, and leeks, but I'm not going to give up my freedom for a bunch of, a br bunch of vegetables. And yet, that's exactly what they're willing to do. They forget how God had providing, been providing for them, not only giving them manna, but leading them from slavery to freedom. And they rejected it time and again, which is why they ended up having to wander 40 years, a journey that should have taken less than 40 days. 40 years wandering. And yet God provided that entire time. If that's what God does in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament in the New, then Jesus himself is saying, he is that manna that's come down from heaven. He is the bread of life. And notice, <coughs> excuse me, next year we will hear the fullness of the bread of life discourse during the middle of uh, the summer, usually in late July, um, in cycle B. And as we hear that, we're, we're going to hear 
and, and we've already heard in the past, that each time Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life within you, there's an objection. And every time there's objection, Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute, you're not understanding me. I'm talking figuratively. I'm talking, I'm kind of like the food that you need, to, you need to meditate on. And No, he gets stronger. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. And today we pick up the Jews quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They understand explicitly what he's saying. In fact, fact, their understanding of it is exactly as the Roman Empire understood it. That Christians were accused for the first centuries of being cannibals because we claimed we ate the flesh of the Son of Man. How can this be that some 2,000 years later we have a more explicit understanding of what it means but not once did somebody say, wait a minute, you're not understanding us. No, we're just, we're just eating bread. They tried to explain that we believe that Jesus Christ becomes bread for us. The bread that we give becomes something different. And we receive it as the body of Christ. They didn't have the language. They didn't have the philosophy. And to be honest, like so many of the doctrines of the church, when you're struggling just for life itself, you don't have time to philosophize. You probably know this. When it's a struggle to, to make ends meet, you're not going to sit down and read a long book. You're going to be out there hustling, aren't you? The same is true for the church. When the church had to defend itself against tyranny and, and oppression and, and death itself, it didn't have time to discern you know, How can bread become flesh? But yet it does. And St. Thomas Aquinas and and the scholastic scholars have given us the language, yes, transubstantiation, and have helped us to understand what this is. In fact, this feast that we celebrate today, so many of these texts that we pray, that that sequence uh, shortened as it was this morning, is a prayer from St. Thomas Aquinas. The Tantum Ergo and the Solitaris and so many of the Eucharistic hymns that we sing are from him. So often he is uh, just thought of as kind of this philosophical egghead, this man who who, uh, lived for books and, and intellectualism. And yes, that's true. He was a very intellectual man. But he was first a mystic. First somebody who understood what the Eucharist was, or better, who the Eucharist was. And as a result, the result of years of prayer, he wrote these beautiful hymns, these poems, these love stories almost, of who the Eucharist is. And tonight, as we gather as a church in in the Liturgy of the Hours, we will pray one of the most powerful lines, I believe. How holy is this feast in which Christ is our food. His passion is recalled. Grace floods our hearts, and we receive the pledge of future glory. He understood who Jesus is, that the bread and the wine become the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, we can't see it with our eyes, certainly not always, 
But at the same time, there have been Eucharistic miracles. Uh, Lanciano, and there was one more recently in Buenos Aires, where our good Pope Francis came from. He had some initial dealings with that particular miracle. They were, the, the host became like flesh itself, looking like flesh. They sent both from Lanciano, which is 13th century, don't quote me on that, and, and Buenos Aires, uh, different, different times, to labs to be tested. The DNA matched. How is that supposed to happen? Not only that, but uh, an expert on, on cell structures looked at it and he, he determined that the cells, <coughs> that it was human tissue. More importantly, human tissue from the left ventricle. I find that interesting because the left ventricle is what uh, part of my heart has been damaged. And that this human heart tissue is of a man who suffered greatly. But not only that, if you happen to take a biopsy of, of my heart or your heart, that tissue would be dead within hours. The tissue from Lanciano, some centuries ago, was living. That's not supposed to happen. Scientists cannot explain this. It is a miracle. And it's a miracle that helps us know the veracity of our faith. That what we receive in this Eucharist, though it doesn't look, it doesn't taste, it doesn't smell like human flesh, it is the body of Jesus Christ. It is real and present. This flesh is given to us daily. It is our manna. It is the bread that's come down from heaven. And this bread makes us one. As we hear in today's second reading, St. Paul saying we have all received from one loaf. It makes us one. So often we as Catholics think we gather as the Catholic Church and, and we, we take bread and we take wine and we make the Eucharist. St. John Paul II reminds us that is not the case. Rather, it is Christ who first gave us the Eucharist. Christ who first suffered and died on the cross for us and gave us the Eucharist as a memorial of his suffering and death, passion recalled. That we come and gather because he has called us together. And through the ministry of a priest, that he makes himself present again and gives himself to us to make us the body of Christ. That we are drawn together by Christ. It is the Eucharist, therefore, that makes the church, not the other way around. That we are made the church by the Eucharist we receive. This is a mystery we cannot fully understand. It's a mystery we can only ponder, too, much like the Holy Trinity itself. That we are called, drawn in to this mystery, to the sharing. Everything that we need is found here. St. Thomas Aquinas, when he had to struggle with trying to explain some matter of doctrine, instead of going to his books, he went to the tabernacle. Solanus Casey, uh, blessed Solanus, uh, a man I, a father, uh, a priest, a man I, I hope soon is canonized. When he was in need of time, would play the fiddle before the Blessed Sacrament. 
his brothers in the, in the convent were very, very happy. We played in front of the Blessed Sacrament because they were far, far away from him because he couldn't play very well. But he played all the same. I've seen people that have been in great distress come and sit before the Blessed Sacrament and leave. Not that their cha situation changed, but their attitude towards it did. I've seen people in grief stand before the Blessed Sacrament and feel that grief relieved at least a little bit. That the Eucharist does not nourish us technically very well for those that are curious, it's about one calorie, the host. It does not nourish our bodies, but it changes us. Unlike food that we receive and is transformed into us, this sacred food we receive transforms us into it. St. Augustine said it best, we are what we receive. Our health industry has taken that line and made it, you are what you eat. No, it's about the Eucharist first. We are what we receive. We come this day asking the Lord to help us. Oh, and by the way, one last thing. Where did we find any of this in Scripture besides the Bread of Life discourse? How about a prayer we pray, or we ought to pray at least daily, at least a few times daily? We pray it, and it's a bad translation perhaps. We pray it and say, give us this day our daily bread. But that word that's translated daily is bigger than that. The better translation, and gets wordy, is give us this day our super substantial bread. Beyond substance. Beyond substance. Or another way of saying that, transubstantiation. We see it hidden, the Eucharist hidden, and it is real. We come this day asking the Lord to help us, to help us understand, especially in this year, as the church invites us in, as a parish to revive our understanding of who we receive in the Eucharist, that we would understand more fully that the Lord gives us himself, hidden in what appears to be bread and wine, daily, substantially, transubstantially, really present.